The America's National Parks Podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean, dedicated to helping you experience all the benefits of time outside and stay more comfortable while you're out there. From soft and breathable activewear designed to do it all, to just right layers perfect for changing weather, to sun-smart clothing that blocks the sun's harmful rays, every L.L. Bean product is made with comfortable time outside in mind. Visit LLBean.com to shop now. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. Once long ago, in the land called Wisconsin, across the Great Lake, there was a terrible hunger and many people died. A bear and two little cubs were trying to leave the place and come around the lake where there would be more food. They walked for many days on the beach together, but after a while, the two little cubs began to whimper with hunger, and so the bear decided to swim across the rest of the lake. They waded into the water, one cub on each side of the bear, and they swam off into the lake a long way. After a while, the cubs began to get very tired, and so the bear said, Try hard, the land is not very far. And very soon, they did come in sight of land. But gradually, the cubs got weaker, and only ten miles away, one cub sank into the water. Soon after, the other also drowned. The bear's heart was broken, but she could do nothing. She waded ashore and lay down, looking out onto the water where her cubs had died. Eventually, both of them came to the surface as two little islands. And so, the bear still lies there atop the dunes, looking after her children. There are two different versions of the story of Sleeping Bear, which are an Anishinaabe oral tradition of a sacred place within their Great Lakes homelands. The islands in the story are real, located off the coast of Northern Lake Michigan, and are now part of a national lakeshore that protects the ecosystems as well as the stories that thrive there. I'm Jason Epperson, and this week on America's National Parks, Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. If you've never been there before, when you think of Michigan, you may not imagine miles of sandy beaches, turquoise waters, and bluffs that tower more than 450 feet above one of the four great lakes that border the state. There are also inland lakes, lush forests, an island lighthouse, coastal villages, and picturesque farmsteads. All of these fantastic features can be found in Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. Surely the English version of the Anishinaabe tradition passed on for generations is steeped in cultural appropriation when I tell it and as the origin story for an American national park. But I think it's important to share what I can of what gives this place its name. Immense dunes, high bluffs, and dune plateaus line the shoreline of Lake Michigan in the park. The Sleeping Bear Bluffs, Empire Bluffs, and Pyramid Point are glacial moraines that extended into Lake Michigan. Over thousands of years, wind and waves have eroded the steep faces that overlook the lake. Waves beat against the bases of the bluffs, cutting away and exposing sand and gravel. The wind then blows the sand up the bluff and deposits it on the top. The dunes at Sleeping Bear are part of a plateau that is five miles long and three miles wide. 
Since the dunes sit on top of already high glacial moraines, they're called perched dunes. Standing on the dunes, it's easy to watch this process happen. On a windy day, sand from the beaches will blow up the front of the dune, only to be trapped in a patch of native beach grass at the top. The sand that makes it through the grass may travel all the way to the back dunes, where other types of vegetation try to hold the sand in place. Some plants like pitcher's thistle and beech pea can trap sand and organic matter that's blowing in the area in their leaves and can use the nutrients from the sand to nourish themselves. The sand is constantly on the move. Further inland from the lakeshore, there are crescent-shaped hills of sand that have covered forests, and as they move, they expose skeletal forests that were first covered by sand hundreds of years earlier. The two islands in the park represented by the bear cubs in the Anishinaabe oral tradition are part of an island chain that extends north to the Straits of Mackinac. South Manitou is around 8 square miles and North Manitou larger at around 22 square miles. The 15,000 acres of North Manitou Island are managed as a wilderness area, but nearly all parts of both islands are available for camping, hiking, and exploration. Indigenous people lived at what is now Sleeping Bear Dunes as early as 11,000 BCE. In the 70s and 80s, archaeologists discovered artifacts that date to the Paleo-Indian period from 11,000 to 8,000 BCE. These finds include spear points made from flint that was from as far away as Bayport, Michigan on Saginaw Bay. Camps on and near the dunes were temporary, and evidence suggests that they were mainly used for butchering and skinning game animals. The hunters were likely hunting near the edge of retreating glaciers as they passed through. The Archaic period lasted for the next 7,000 years as the glaciers retreated northward and allowed the lakes to drain to the east instead of down the Mississippi River. The shores of Lake Michigan were around 400 feet lower than today, but started to rise over time. Evidence discovered from North and South Manitou Islands shows that late Archaic peoples lived there. At some sites, archaeologists have discovered flint from Indiana, copper from Lake Superior, and conch shells from the Gulf Coast of Florida, which means these people had extensive trade and social contact systems. From 600 BCE to 1620 Common Era, Native Americans lived in the last prehistoric period before European contact, known as the Woodland Period. This period is defined by types of pottery. The surface of woodland pottery has a cord-roughened finish that's produced by malleting the pot with a cord-wrapped paddle. It's tempered with coarse grit, and the upper portion of the pottery often has pronounced collars. Twisted cords or pressed lines in geometric patterns often adorn the rim of the pottery for decoration. Earliest woodland occupations in the Sleeping Bear Dunes area is evidenced by pottery dating between 200 and 600 CE at a site east of Glen Arbor. It was likely a hunting or fishing village with people passing through the area. Indigenous peoples living in the area were instrumental in the success of French explorers. They taught the Europeans how to use birch bark canoes to travel the Great Lakes, blaze trails for fur traders and road builders, and taught them how to grow maize and live off the land. Tribal warfare prevented Native Americans from settling in the lower peninsula of Michigan. The Five Nations Iroquois from upstate New York dispatched war parties to Michigan to try and gain control of the fur trade. This forced the Potawatomi, Sauk, and Foxes to flee to the west. Due to this aggression, the peninsula of what is now Michigan became a no-man's land. 
The Potawatomi, Ottawa, and Chippewa were known as the three brothers of the Algonquin family. The Potawatomi migrated south, and the Chippewa and Ottawa commingled in northern Michigan. Together, the three brothers shared a few different hunting and fishing territories, including the Sleeping Bear area. Between 1814 and 1831, Michigan's superintendent of Indian Affairs was busy negotiating treaties in the area. His name was Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. Schoolcraft also wrote about the histories of the tribes in the area and was the first American to create a written account of the Sleeping Bear region. He lived and studied among the Ojibwe or Chippewa for 30 years while he was a federal Indian agent at Salt St. Marie and married the daughter of Chippewa chief Wabojig, Jane Johnston, in 1823. One of the major treaties he helped prepare was the 1836 Treaty of Washington, which forced the Chippewa and Ottawa tribes to cede their land in the northwestern Lower Peninsula to the United States. This transfer included Sleeping Bear Dunes. There is only one lighthouse in Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore, found on South Manitou Island, which can be seen from the mainland. The lighthouse was active from 1871 to 1958 and marked the only natural harbor between Northern Lake Michigan and Chicago. Steamers used to stop at the island to stock up on wood for their boilers and ships would take refuge here during storms. After the Erie Canal was completed in 1826, commercial navigation in the Great Lakes boomed. For steamers and schooners traveling 300 miles down the length of Lake Michigan, the Manitou Passage provided a safe haven and a refueling point on the long journey. In 1838, Congress appropriated $5,000 to build a lighthouse that would guide ships across the lake during stormy weather. Construction began in 1839, but historians do not know much about the first lighthouse building, and its exact location is still not known today. Nearly 20 years later, the U.S. Lighthouse Establishment replaced the existing house with a two-story brick residence and a 35-foot tower on top for safety. More shipping traffic in the Great Lakes meant a need for a taller light tower, and a 100-foot tower was built in 1871. During the lighthouse's operation for 87 years, there were 17 keepers and 32 assistant keepers that maintained the light. Hello, I'm Margaret Kelly. And I'm Patty Kelly. Margaret and I have been volunteers for approximately 25 years. We have a special affinity to the island due to our family's history that's steeped in the story of the island. Today, Patty and I are going to give you a tour of the beautiful lighthouse tower. It faces due east over the Manitou Passage, which was and still is a major shipping lane, the other side of which is the mainland and western Leelanau County. James Burdick, our grandfather, was born and raised on this island. James was a long-serving lighthouse keeper here. In fact, he was the longest-serving lighthouse keeper from 1908 to 1928. When you enter the tower, you can feel this rush of cold air that settles to the bottom of the tower, even on a hot summer day. There's 117 steps on the self-supporting stairway. And if you look up, it's a pretty cool view because it's all open steps. I like to think of how many times my grandfather walked up and down these stairs. 
On this first landing here is a door that leads down the hallway going to the keeper's quarters. The thickness of the walls decrease as you ascend the tower. That's what gives the tower its conical shape. The interior diameter of the tower stays the same. As we go up this last flight of circular stairs, there's a hatch that you'll have to go through. Mind your head. Yeah, and this landing here is the keeper's watch room. There are three windows here facing north, east, and south. In this landing, the keeper could check out the entire passage and keep an eye on things. This ladder here gave access to the keepers so that they could get to the lens when they had to clean it or the windows. And right above here, you'll see the light itself. The original was manufactured, made by Henri Lepote of Paris. The original lens was destroyed by vandals some years after the Coast Guard closed the lighthouse in the late 1950s. It remained dark for the next 50 plus years until it was restored in 2009. This is why thousands of people have climbed the hundred steps. This right here. The sounds, the sky, the wind, there's no place like it on Earth. Here is your Manitou Passage. The North Manitou Shoal Light is over here. The Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lake Shore is there. And to this side of the island, you get the grandeur of the island itself, the dunes, the woods, etc. Though the light is no longer used for navigational purposes, both mariners and mainlanders alike enjoy seeing it lit once again. So from May through September, the light shines again in the passage a beacon of historical significance. I think Grandpa would be proud. I think so too. The lighthouse became an important center for community. Though when logging operations ended, the village dwindled in size and moved closer to the life-saving station on the island, which is where the passenger ferry arrives today. The village was able to expand as careers like the life-saving service and lighthouse keepers allowed people to make a living and not need to leave the island. Most houses were built between 1908 and 1920 and provided a place for crew members to live year-round. In the early 1900s, logging transitioned into agriculture on the island. And the Michigan Agriculture College, now Michigan State University, chose the island as a site to grow rosin rye seed, which depends on sandy soils. Maintaining a pure strand of rye is difficult, so growing on the island was perfect because there would be no stray rye pollen to interrupt the process. Eventually, ship traffic on South Manitou Island ended. It became too expensive to farm, and families began to leave. The lighthouse on South Manitou Island can be accessed in the summer by taking a day trip and meeting with a ranger when you get there. The lighthouse is less than half a mile from the dock and can be found by walking through the village and past the visitor center to a boardwalk that will help you climb the dunes. Visitors can climb the 117 steps of the circular staircase to the top of the lighthouse for an amazing view of the island and Manitou Passage. 
There was once a lighthouse on North Manitou Island as well, built in 1896. It closed in 1935 and because of shoreline erosion, fell into the lake in October of 1942. In 2014, President Obama signed the Sleeping Bear Dunes Wilderness into law, making Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore the 50th National Park area with designated wilderness. This means that the land is protected under the Wilderness Act, which also celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2014. Wilderness areas generally are more than 5,000 acres in size and should have ecological, geological, educational, scenic, or historical value. At Sleeping Bear Dunes, it's not vast forests that this act protects, but fragile dune environments that cannot be found in many other places in the world. The Sleeping Bear Dunes Wilderness is not a remote location, so it doesn't need much money, time, or specialized experience to access it. Hiking or biking the 20 miles of pavement or packed gravel on the Heritage Trail is one great way to see the park. And in total, the park is home to over 100 miles of trails. You can also cruise along the seven-mile Pierce Stocking Scenic Drive, enjoy the Inland Loon Lake, or tackle the Dune Climb for a great view of Glen Lake. Remember that dunes are a fragile environment, so if we want to protect them for years to come, it's best to stay on existing paths and avoid stepping on plants. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, narrated by Abigail Trebu, written by Lindsay Taylor, whose blog, The Curiosity Chronicles, can be found on the webpage for this episode, and featuring a recording from Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. If you enjoyed the show, we love a five-star review wherever you listen to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group, almost 100,000 members strong. For more great American destinations, give us a listen at the Sea America podcast. And if you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys at OurWanderingFamily.com. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. <laughs>